This week, Pastor Skip has been in India at the invitation of Gospel for Asia. As part of this trip, Skip taught at a GFA training center in Delhi, along with Chip and Gino Geraci. In addition, they were able to tour the Taj Mahal and the Red Fort in Agra. They also visited a GFA Bridges for Hope Center that is among those bringing 50,000 homeless children off the streets of India's worst cities and giving them education, food, and hope. On Sunday, Pastor Skip received an honorary doctorate of divinity from the Gospel for Asia Seminary and had the privilege of addressing the many students who were graduating to take the gospel far and wide in the subcontinent. And now, here is the Sunday morning message that Pastor Skip gave to a full house at the Gospel for Asia Believers Church. It's great to be with you this morning. I count it a real privilege and an honor from the Lord to be addressing you. And I have been here on many occasions in India. The first time I came to this country was in 1983 when the Ministry of Gospel for Asia was very small and just starting out. And I knew uh, uh, Bishop KP and his wife and family uh, when we were all much younger. And um, I'm really excited to see the things that God has done, not only here in Kerala, but around India and around Asia. I'll talk more about that at tomorrow's graduation. But uh, today, I'd like to speak with you out of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. If you would turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, we're going to look together at several verses of Scripture and look at the life of Nehemiah. Look at what kind of a leader he was and how did this man make a difference. As we begin this morning, I want to tell you a story about my son. My son is named Nathan and he has been to India. A few years ago he visited. But when he was quite young, he was about eight years old or ten years old, he had woken up in the morning and my wife, Lenya, was in his bedroom at his bedside and he had a dream the night before. There's a beautiful girl at that time in his class at school named Emily. And he said, Mommy, I had a dream that Emily and I were married. <laughs> now he's eight years old. But he had a dream that he married this beautiful girl named Emily. And then he said, Mommy, I'm going to tell you something that's going to make you sad. Or it's going to hurt your feelings. Or it might make you mad. And he said, Mommy, Emily is prettier than you are. <laughs> and just then I walked into the bedroom and I overheard the conversation and my wife said to Nathan well daddy thinks that I'm prettier and then Nathan smiled and he said not if he saw Emily <laughs> my son was sure at eight years old that my wife and myself would be shaken up by the beauty of an eight-year-old girl. But he was only eight years old himself, so he didn't understand. Here's my question. What does it take to shake up a Christian? 
What does it take to motivate a Christian to do God's work? What did it take to shake up Nehemiah, to leave a place in a very comfortable position and go to another place in a very difficult situation? What was it that shook him to the core? And then, how did he go about doing the work that God called him to do? That's what I want to talk to you about today. When I was growing up as a child, my father was a builder. He built buildings, and he built many homes. He developed land. He could look at an empty piece of property and have a vision for what might happen on that piece of property. Nehemiah was also a builder. He was a builder who left the empire where he was in Persia, and he had a vision for building God's city, the city of Jerusalem, where God called him. The Bible tells us that Nehemiah was a cup-bearer, a cup-bearer, and he turns from cup-bearer to construction engineer by the grace and the calling of God. He was motivated, and he moved with that motivation, and he built God's kingdom. Somebody said there's three kinds of people. There's those who make things happen. Number two, there's those who watch things happen. And number three, there's people who have no idea what is happening. Nehemiah was not number three. He knew what was happening. And he was a person to make things happen and to go to Jerusalem and build. How did he do it? Well, he takes five important steps to go from where he was to where God called him to be. Number one, the first step, was reaction. Nehemiah had the right kind of reaction. And we read about that in Nehemiah chapter 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. So it was, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept, and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The Bible here tells us that Nehemiah was a cup-bearer. It doesn't sound very impressive. It doesn't sound like he had an important job. It sounds like Maybe he was a dishwasher, or he was the chaiwala of the empire. But a cupbearer was much, much more than that. It was like a private secretary, a private friend, who would influence the king. Nothing could come to the king unless it first went through Nehemiah. So he had a very important, very comfortable government role in the kingdom of Persia. And he seemed 
by all accounts of reading the text, he seemed to be very, very happy where he was. He liked being there. Why should he ever want to go any place else than that place? Until one day. One day, people from Jerusalem, the place of his heritage, the place of his forefathers, had come. And he knew they were from Jerusalem, so he asked them about the condition of the city. What's happening back there? He knew that people had left and gone back to Jerusalem, about 50,000 of them, to rebuild the city and to do God's work again. And so he asked a question, and the answer to the question shook him up, shook him up inside. And it caused a very deep reaction of weeping and praying and then fasting. The question is, why should Nehemiah even care about Jerusalem? It was so far away, and he and his family had been in this new place for so many years. It was a comfortable position. Why should he care about Jerusalem? The answer is because he was Jewish. Because it was the land of his forefathers. It was the land that he had a heritage in. It was much like Brother Bishop K.P., Yohanan, who years ago went to the United States of America. But something God placed in his heart about his own native India shook him up and moved him to want to go back and get involved and see this great work that we experience today established here. It's been said that a Jew never forgets Jerusalem. And I think that's true. Even King David said, If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its cunning, and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. It's because Nehemiah cared, was shaken up. He had the right reaction that caused him to want to go back. And that is always the first step what is your reaction, what is my reaction to the need of the world in which we live? When we see what's happening or hear what's happening, what is our reaction to it? Nehemiah cared. Like other people in the Bible, Daniel cared. Daniel the prophet was in Babylon. But he cared enough to read the Bible. And he understood that 70 years of captivity were up and that God would bring his people back. And so he set his face, the Bible tells us, to seek the Lord, all because he cared. The prophet Jeremiah cared. He cared to speak to the people and to warn the people, even though they did not want to listen to him, even though they locked him up and shunned him and persecuted him. He cared. So, ask the right questions. Get the right information and have the right reaction. That's what Nehemiah does. Some people don't want to ask questions about the condition of the world. Some people don't want to know about the true condition spiritually of the world around them. Because once they have the information, they will now have an obligation. That's exactly what Nehemiah wanted to know. What's happening in Jerusalem that I need to know about? 
So that's the first step, reaction. The second step is presentation. Once I find out what's happening, I want to present myself before the Lord to be a part of the solution. And that takes us to chapter 2 of Nehemiah. Now Nehemiah stands before the king, the one that he works for. And it came to pass, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in the presence before of the king. Therefore, the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, and I said to the king, May the king live forever. And why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire? And then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Here is the second principle. Once Nehemiah found out what was happening in Jerusalem and wept and was shaken up and had the right reaction, he, number two, presents himself before the Lord and even before his king to get permission to go back home and fix the city. It says, I prayed to the Lord and then I spoke to the king. I believe in his heart at that moment, it was Nehemiah saying, Lord, I'm willing to go if you want me to go. Open up a door for me. And he addressed the king, and the king gave him permission. This same principle is found in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So Nehemiah becomes available to meet the need to leave his position in the palace as an important person, as a cupbearer, and to go all the way on a long, hard journey over to Jerusalem and fix that city. And why is that? Why would he be willing to present himself? Because Nehemiah was not interested in building up the kingdom of Persia. He was interested in building up the kingdom of God. It wasn't about the position and power and money that he could make staying in Persia. He wanted to build up the kingdom of God. I'll talk to you more about it uh, tomorrow at graduation, but for a long time, I felt like I should become a medical doctor. I went to a school for radiology and worked with x-rays, and I had a friend who was a very important doctor in California 
who was urging me to finish medical school, and I felt like I should pursue that. But then the Lord took me in another direction. Instead of building up my kingdom, build up His kingdom. Instead of fixing men's bodies, be a part of fixing men's souls and changing their hearts forever. So often, Christian people want to ask God to do something for them. Lord, they say, please do something for me. And they make it all about me, me, me. And I think the Lord would say, I will bless you. I do love you. I, I do plan to do that for you. But what will you do for me, the Lord, my kingdom? Many years ago in our country, there was a president, and his name was John Fitzgerald Kennedy. He was the president of the United States who was assassinated uh, in Dallas, Texas. And his famous speech at his inauguration is he turned to the American people and he said, Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. It was a very, very famous speech. And so often we are asking God to do things for us and to bless us, and He loves to do things for us, and He loves to bless us. But the real joy and thrill and contentment and excitement comes in being used by Him, presenting yourself to Him for His purpose and His will. And you see, God is looking for volunteers. People who willingly want to go, who say in their heart, I want to do this. God does not want to force your labor, but wants you to become his partner. A few years ago, I was in the store buying some groceries for my family, and there was a woman in line who recognized that I was the pastor of one of the local churches, and she said, Hi, Pastor. How are you? And I said, Hi, good. How are you? There was somebody else standing in the line at the store who looked at me and said, Are you a minister? I said, Yes, I am. And she said, Why would you do that? She didn't understand that it's something I want to do. She thought perhaps I was forced to do it. But I wasn't forced to do it. I presented myself to the Lord, and it's something that I want to do. We all know the story of Paul the Apostle, who was once Saul of Tarsus. And we remember that he was on his way to Damascus, and the Lord got his attention, and he fell off of his horse. And the first question he asked was, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. But the second question is also very important that Saul of Tarsus asked, Lord, what do you want me to do? I've met many Christians who ask the first question, but they never ask the second question. They want to find out who the Lord is. They'll get converted. They'll get saved. They'll keep asking more of the same question, Who are you, Lord? as they study the Bible and take notes get degrees. They want to find out who the Lord is and get more knowledge. But the real joy comes when we ask the second question. Lord, 
What is it that you want me to do? And some believers have never got around to asking that question for themselves. Where we resign ourselves to His will. We present ourselves to Him. So, Nehemiah had the right reaction. Number two, there was the presentation of himself to the Lord. Now, Nehemiah has come to Jerusalem. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, he's made the long journey, and it takes us to the third step that Nehemiah took. And that is examination. He examined the walls of Jerusalem. He didn't go to work first. He didn't do it immediately. He took time to find out what needed to be done, to examine it. So look at chapter 2, in verse 11. And so I came to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate, and I viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates which were burned with fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate, and to the king's pool, and there was no room for the animal to pass under me. So I went up in the night by the valley, and I viewed the wall, and then I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so I returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Now there's a very important phrase that I want you to look at. It said, I told no one, and here's the phrase, what God put in my heart. God put something in Nehemiah's heart. God gave to Nehemiah a vision to do some work. He didn't tell anybody at first. He didn't say, I'm here to work. I need you to help me work. The first thing he did was wait for three days and examine the damage and consider what God had put in his heart to do for the city. There was a time for Nehemiah to get to work. But the first work God must do is the work in Nehemiah's heart. Before Nehemiah can do work on the walls, God needs to work on his heart. And we call that vision. That's vision. Now that word vision, a lot of people use that word today. Christian people use it. Secular people use it. And usually what people mean by vision is having insight or foresight to do something or to get a job done. But the Bible would tell us that vision is more than that. Vision is a God-inspired plan. It's something that God puts in the heart for us to do, to further His work. It's a man or woman of God that comes to a village or a city or a country and he views what's happening. And God puts something in his heart or her heart because they see the potential, the spiritual potential that is there. There's a great story about Michelangelo, the artist, 
He was in Florence, Italy, hundreds of years ago. And he was looking for just the right piece of stone that he could sculpt a great work. And so he went to the marble yards where the big blocks of marble had been shipped and he examined. And he looked at one piece of marble and he said, that's the piece that I want. And the one who owned the yard where the marble was stored said, I don't think you want that piece of marble, Michelangelo. Look very closely and you see a crack, a flaw that is running through it. Michelangelo said these words, There is an angel trapped inside that block of marble and I must set it free. Michelangelo saw what nobody else saw. He saw the potential. He didn't look at the flaw. He noticed the flaw. He understood the flaw. But he saw the potential of taking a flawed piece of marble and making a great work of art that today is still in Florence, Italy. It's known as his great work called David, that massive statue of David from a flawed piece of marble. God looks at our lives and he sees the cracks and the flaws and the marrings of the devil and the world. And the world would reject us. And God says, I see the potential in that man and that woman. And it's the same vision we must have when we go to our places that God calls us to see the potential that is there, to examine it, but to know by the grace of God what God could do as He puts it in our heart. So, we're told that Nehemiah viewed the walls. Or a better translation, he examined the walls. It's a medical term in Hebrew that means to probe a wound to see the damage that is done to it. That's what Nehemiah did. A good leader will do this. A good leader will take time to examine something before he goes to work on something. So as you graduate, as you go out to wherever the Lord calls you, picture your ministry like an inspector. Go there first and inspect and examine the nature of the community, the nature of the work that you're up against, and the potential of what God could do, like Nehemiah was inspecting the walls. I want you to listen to what A.W. Tozer wrote. He said, Aimless activity is beneath the dignity of a human being. The great weight of exhortation these days is in the direction of zeal and activity. Let's get going, everybody says. With the result that people feel ashamed to sit down first and think. I want you to hear that exhortation. There's nothing wrong with sitting down first and thinking through your calling and thinking through the plan of action before you move on it. Nehemiah did. He didn't tell anybody what he was going to do, and he didn't go to work. First was a reaction. Second was a presentation. And third was the examination of the work. Here's the fourth step in Nehemiah making a difference. Cooperation. Cooperation. Getting the right people who share the vision around him to do the work. 
that God had called him to do. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 17. Then, and that's a very important word, then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in and how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. And so they said, Let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. What we notice here is that though Nehemiah didn't tell anyone at first what God put in his heart, after a few days he did. After a while, at the right time, Nehemiah told the right people, it says here, a few, and then he told the rest what God had told him to do. This is cooperation. When we do the work of the Lord, we must surround ourselves with the right people. Get the right people with the same heart and the same vision, who can walk down the same road of God's calling and do the work together. The prophet Amos said, how can two walk together except they be agreed? So you want to find people who share the same vision, who will work cooperatively together. And many studies show that uh, people cannot function effectively unless they have deep links, meaningful relationships with other people. And notice in verse 17, the word we, and then us, and then we again. Here's Nehemiah. He's only been there a few days, but he identifies the right kind of leaders and quickly brings them to cooperate with the work, not saying, I'm called by God, I will build the walls, this is my ministry and my work, but this is our ministry. We will build. We will do it together. There was a man who had a dream. Now, I told you about my little boy who had a dream when he was eight years old. I'll now tell you about a man who had a dream. He had a dream that he was sitting at a table. And there were many other people sitting at a long banquet table. Everybody was dressed up. It was a very festive, fancy, special occasion. And there was food laid out on the table for everybody to eat. It was magnificent. But because it was a dream, dreams can be strange. They don't always make sense when we have dreams. He dreamed that though there were people who were hungry and ready to eat the banquet and the food was there, that everybody had little boards that were tied to their arms. It was a dream. People dream strange things. There were little boards on each arm. So the person could reach the food, but could not bend the arm. So one person tried to grab the food and take it to his mouth, but the boards that were tied to his arm, he couldn't do it. And it was very frustrating in his dream because they all tried to do it, but none of them could eat. That's the purpose of the meal, to eat, to be nourished. 
eventually, in the dream, one guy got the bright idea of taking a bit of food and turning to his neighbor and lifting it up to his mouth and letting him eat of the food that he was putting in it. And they all thought, yeah, we can do that. And so each of them turned, took the food, and fed the next person across the table and next to each other. And soon, everybody enjoyed a wonderful meal. Why? Because they cooperated together. They fed each other. It wasn't about my food, my meal, my nutrition, but our food, our meal, our nutrition. It was only a dream, but it should be reality. It should be reality in the ministry that God calls us to do, to cooperate with people. All of us need good, godly friends around us in the ministry. Moses discovered that, didn't he? Moses was out one day as the great lawgiver, and his father-in-law Jethro came to visit. This is Exodus chapter 18. And Moses was out there from morning till evening, and Jethro was watching Moses work so hard and sweat. And thinking in the evening that his father-in-law would be so proud of his hard-working son-in-law, Moses discovered that he wasn't proud at all. And Jethro, his father-in-law, said, Moses, the thing that you are doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out. And you're going to wear out the people. Now, I have met Christian leaders who try to act very pious and very holy and very spiritual. And they work, work, work. And they say, I'd rather work for the Lord so hard that I drop dead. I'd rather burn out, they say. It's better than rusting out. But think about it. Either way, you're out. You want to stay in, not out. You want to have a long ministry, God willing. And so he said, Moses, the thing that you are doing is not good. I recommend, number one, that you, Moses, get alone with God and listen to God. And number two, that you teach people the principles and the laws of God. And number three, that you get qualified people around you to share the work of the ministry. And so they developed elders in the land, 70 of them. It was a good principle. It still is. In the book of Acts, the apostles discovered the same thing. In Acts chapter 6, the people were coming to the apostles. You remember the story. Because there was a problem with the daily distribution. And finally, the leadership said, we're not going to leave the Word of God and serve tables. We need to be praying and preparing the Word of God and let other people be raised up to share in this work. It's a good principle. It's a great principle. The very famous evangelist D.L. Moody, I'm sure you've heard of Dwight Moody in Chicago, Illinois. D.L. Moody said, I would rather get... Ten men to do the work than for me to do the work of ten men. That's wise. That's wise. Cooperation. And we see it in chapter 2. 
And we see it in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is all about building the wall of Jerusalem. And so, in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, it will say, this person was building the wall, and next to him was this person, and next to him was another person, and next to them was this family, and next to them was another family, all the way through the chapter. Well, that's the New Testament concept of the body of Christ. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 12, We have diversities of gifts, but it's the same Spirit. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. We're the body of Christ. Jesus Christ is the head. He's in charge. He tells us what He wants, where He wants us to go. And the Holy Spirit takes the message from the head, Christ, and tells all the different members of the body what to do, where to do them, and how to do them. But what happens if one member of the body of Christ doesn't get the message? What if, what if one member doesn't cooperate? So here you have one person only, the leader or the pastor, doing all the work. It's not a healthy body. It's not a true functioning body. I have a friend who several years ago got a very bad disease called multiple sclerosis, MS. And as years went on, instead of smooth, even motions like this, they were jerky movements. Because the tissue in the brain became hardened and the messages created in the brain couldn't get through the tissue to give the messages to the various parts of the body. And so rather than a normal, healthy, smooth functioning body, it was a very jerky movement, incomplete movement. You know, sometimes the world looks at the church and sees that kind of a body. Like somebody with multiple sclerosis where not all the members are functioning together, not all the members are ministering together, not everybody is cooperating together, just the very few are doing the work Christ called them to do. And it's not smooth, it's not a true functioning body. The Lord wants us all to be a part of it. Cooperation. Fifth and final one is determination. Determination. Now this is important. Because once you have the right reaction, and you get the information, and you present yourself to God, and you examine the work and get the vision God wants for your ministry, and get the right people around you, you're going to need something more. You're going to need determination. You're going to need to have the mindset that says, if God called me here, this is what I'm going to do until God tells me otherwise. I'm going to stay at it. I'm going to stick with it. I'm not going to flinch. I'm not going to move. I want you to see this in Nehemiah chapter 2. Look at verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? When will you, will you rebel against the king? So I answered and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. And therefore, we his servants will arise and build, 
but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Now you know, whenever you do the work of God, you can expect opposition. If God called you somewhere and opens the door and surrounds you with people and gives you the vision, you can expect that because it's the work of God, that his arch enemy, the devil, is not going to be happy about you surrendering yourself to the Lord. Whenever a Christian comes to the place and says, Lord, I surrender completely to you. I'm totally yours, whatever you want. Don't expect hell to give them a standing ovation. The devil won't go, yay, that's good. I, I, I agree with that. He'll do everything he can to stop the work. I believe that if Nehemiah would have traveled to any other city in the Persian Empire to help build that city, he would not have gotten the opposition that he got here. But because Jerusalem was the very epicenter of God's work on the earth at that time, he was in the center of God's will, center of God's work. That's why the opposition came. Now in my country, we have a little saying, a little law. It's called Murphy's Law. And it's really a joke, but Murphy's Law says, if anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. And some people are pessimistic people. And they always lean on Murphy's Law. Anytime something bad happens, they go, well, that's Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. But now let's take it into the reality of the spiritual realm. I think we could call what we see here Lucifer's Law or Satan's Law. And that, that says, if you're doing right, expect an attack. If you're doing God's work, expect opposition. And Nehemiah got it. Think of David and his life. Before he was King David, he was a shepherd boy. Life was good. David could get up in the morning, whistle, call his sheep, take them out with his staff, lead them, walk, meditate on God's goodness, sing a psalm of glory and worship to him. He really had no opposition until the day that the prophet Samuel identified him as the next king of Israel, the one that God had ordained for a special work. As soon as that happened, it's as if all hell came against David, right? That's when Saul chased him to kill him. That's when the spear was directed in his direction because he was God's man for that time. Nothing will excite the devil more than stopping God's work in an individual's life. If he can cause us through discouragement or persecution or opposition to stop being God's servant, to give up and go, this is too hard, I'm going to quit, that would excite the devil. So it takes determination to make that step and to make a difference. People will laugh at you when you take the gospel to them. People will mock the message. They have throughout the Bible. And people have done that in general. Listen to this. The very first steamboat only traveled a few miles up the coast of our country. It took 32 hours 
to go just a few miles. And everybody laughed, saying, there's no future in boating or in the steamship industry. When the first car, the first automobile was put on the road, a horse and buggy passed it up as if it were standing still. And everybody laughed, saying, there'll be no future for automobiles. Everybody will ride horses and buggies. The first electric light bulb that we now enjoy today, the very first one was so dim you couldn't see anything. Everybody laughed. There's no future, they said, in electric light bulbs. The very first airplane took off and flew for less than one minute. 59 seconds it was in the air before it came down. And everyone laughed and said, there's no future in air travel. They laughed. Well, because this is a spiritual work, you'll have a whole new kind of laughter and a whole new kind of opposition. People will laugh at you. If you serve God, you will need determination to go the distance. Like Paul, who at the end said, I have finished the race. You see, it's not a short run. It's not a 50-yard dash. It's a long marathon. Don't let Satan take the wind out of your sails. As you and I serve the Lord, as we're on our way to heaven, the new Jerusalem, the celestial city, take heart. Because with every bit of opposition and persecution that we will get on the way, we will become stronger and better and more equipped to make more of a difference to serve the world. If you took a bar of steel, just about this big, just a few inches, just a, one bar of steel that was worth $5, I don't know how many rupees that is, a few hundred rupees, it was worth $5. If you beat that bar of steel and made horseshoes, it would be worth $10. If you beat that bar of steel more and more and more and made blades for knives, scalpels for doctors to do surgery, it would be worth thousands of dollars. And if you kept beating that bar of steel and putting fire on it and moving it around and made tiny little springs for little fountain pens to write with, it would be worth up to a quarter of a million dollars. What makes it more valuable? Heat, beating, hardship, opposition, persecution. It becomes more valuable to go the distance. I heard a story of a young man in the ministry. He was very impatient. Anybody here impatient ever get impatient? He was very impatient. He had a very short temper. And he noticed that there was an older man of God, an older gentleman, a pastor who had lived many years, who was very sweet and gracious and very patient. And the young minister went up to the older minister and said, Would you pray for me that God will give me patience? And the older man smiled and he said, I'd love to. Let's pray right now. 
And he laid his hands on him and he said, Lord, I pray that you will send this young man trials and tribulation and fire and persecution and opposition. And the young man said, stop. Don't pray anymore. I didn't ask you to pray for that. I asked you to pray for patience. And the old man smiled and said, exactly. The Bible says, tribulation worketh patience. That's how you get it. It doesn't come easy. But you'll be better, more equipped to do God's work. So, how will you make a difference in the world that you're called to? You have to have the right reaction. You need to then make a presentation. Lord, I'm yours. Whatever you want, I'm yours. Third is examination. Find out what God is telling you to do, what he puts in your heart about that place or that ministry. Number four, cooperate. Get the right people around you to walk with you, to pray with you, to encourage you. And then finally, determination. When it gets hard, keep going. Don't stop. Don't stop. Become more valuable to his work and his kingdom. Because God's watching. Many years ago, and I'll close with this. This is my last story. And you're going, good. There was a group of minstrels. They would dress up in costumes, and they would play music and sing and dance, and they would travel through Europe. The times were getting very difficult. People didn't have the money to pay to go to watch some of these little shows of the minstrels. And so one night, they were getting ready, getting their costumes on, getting their instruments tuned up, ready to go out, but there weren't many people who had come. Just a very few had come to see them play and perform. And they were getting very discouraged. What good is it? Nobody comes to see us. We put so much work into it and we travel from city to city and no one's here. Now, just before their presentation, it began to snow outside. Now in Kerala, you don't know what snow is, but in other parts of the world, there's white things that fall out of the sky. That's snow. It's very, very cold. It began to snow, so people weren't traveling very much. And one of them said, I think we should just quit tonight and stop it all right now. There was a wiser, a little bit older person in the group who said, I don't think we should quit at all. These people have been promised a good presentation. Let's go out and give it our best. At least one last time, let's give it our very, very best. And so they went out and they played and danced and sang like never before. They were fabulous, even though there was only just a few people. But they gave it their best. At the end of the performance, one of the people in the minstrel group came up with a note of paper and his hand was shaking. And he said, here, read this. And so he read it. It said, thank you for a wonderful presentation. Signed, your king. The king of that country had been in the audience, though they didn't recognize him. He was traveling through that city. He was sitting in the audience. He was listening and he was watching. And it was a good thing they did their best. Because they performed for their king.
Your king is watching you. My king Jesus is watching you. It doesn't matter what we're called to, where we are, how many people show up. Do your best. Be determined to do your best for the king and make a difference. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lives that are here. Some are here from this local area, the local state of Kerala. Others are here from other parts of India, many miles away, many kilometers removed. Others are here from other countries in Asia. And they've gathered to be taught and schooled and to be given your vision to examine the world and the word of God. Lord, as they leave this place, and as you send them out, may your Holy Spirit direct each one to make a real difference in this world. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the determination and the patience that will be needed to finish the race and not to stop. I pray you'd encourage each one. Lord, I pray that we would experience the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Just the joy of knowing our King is watching us. And we're not doing this for men. We're doing it for our King. And thus we persuade men and women that all might be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Stotram. Kartawe Stotram. Amen.